2: Hello and welcome to Transplants Take On Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels and my guest today is bone marrow transplant recipient and runner, golfer and tennis player Simon Perkin. Simon speaks openly about receiving two bone marrow transplants following a battle with aplastic anaemia, as well as his sporting achievements, including running the London Marathon seven times and winning multiple medals at the British, European and World Transplant Games. I appreciate this is a longer episode, but like last week, I didn't want to cut out any parts of Simon's story, so please stick around to learn more. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe or follow wherever you normally listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you'd like to follow the podcast on social media, all the links will be in the show notes. Simon Perkin, welcome to Transplant Take on Sport. Thank
0: you, Lewis. It's very good of you to invite me.
2: Pleasure to have you on. Now, you are the first bone marrow transplant recipient on the podcast. So first things first, for those who might not be aware, what is a bone marrow transplant?
0: Well, that's a good question, because when I I first heard about it, I didn't have a clue. Uh, A bone marrow, as I interpret it, I'm no medical expert or anything, uh, but I'd say that the, medic, uh, the the bone marrow essentially is the factory where all the blood's produced. So you may have heard of things like red cells, white cells, neutrophils, all those type of things. But the, you can't exist, basically, without the bone marrow. And the bone marrow is, is the factory. It's, it's, it's where it's the workshop. Where everything's produced. And I suppose in terms of, you know, you think of a dog with a bone, well, it's it's the it's the stuff inside the bone, if that makes sense.
2: We were talking about it the other day when we were having a little sort of meeting and prep, and I referred back to, again, I said at the time, this might sound silly, but I referred to when you see the bone marrow of a chicken that you might cook at home and you see the little brown bit inside. Is it as simple as that?
0: Well, yeah, I think, I think it is. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, I haven't even bothered questioning it. I think initially when I was uh, told I'd, I need a bone marrow transplant, I actually thought there was something physical that goes into into me, uh, you know, like like as you say, like a chicken or something, some some bone, uh, but but it's far from that. What it is 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 the blood, so it's the liquid that goes into you, and it's uh, it really is a bag of blood. So if anyone's had a a, a, a blood transfusion or obviously just you know cut themselves, it just looks like that. That's all it looks like. But it's so precious to to save people's lives. It's so essential. Uh, Most transplants uh, today are 90% are stem cells as opposed to bone marrow. And 90% are um, stem cell. Now, that involves the donor uh, sitting there for approximately four to five hours. And they, they have the stem cells taken out of their own blood, stripped back, and then the blood goes back in. And it, it's pretty simple process for um, people to do. And it's painless. And uh, it's a fantastic thing that anyone anyone can do. Um, and we're encouraging people to, to sign up for the register for stem cell and bone marrow. Um, because, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be here uh, today, if, if I didn't have a, a transplant and a very kind stranger had come forward um, so that's the stem cell If I touch on the bone marrow, which is only a 10% in that case the donor um, They have a general anaesthetic, so they don't know what's going on and what happens is they have a um, uh, The surgeon goes into the hip bone and extracts the bone marrow the liquid and that goes into a bag of, of uh, uh, into a bag and then that's introfused into into the, into the uh, recipient um, the donor um, may feel uh, a bit of a bruise um, I feel like if you've had a knock and you've been playing sports something like that nothing major they might get a bit of a cold um, as I say they don't know anything about it anyway um, they wake up from the general anesthetic and I know people have you know, smiling, they're being captured there with the likes of uh, a wonderful charity, Anthony Nolan, um, who, who really looking for people aged, um, I think it's 16 or 18 to 30, because it's the young people, obviously the healthiest, who are the best to donate. Having said that, you can also donate up to the age, I think it's about 55 through, if it's in the UK, the NHS. Oh, and also there's a, a great organisation called Delete Blood Cancer, to elite blood cancer, Um, they uh, started off in Germany and and they've got no restrictions on their ages. Uh, And this applies right across the world. So anybody can register um, and uh, it just makes sense to me. Uh, But it's something that a lot of people don't know about. Um, They may have heard about organ donation and it's great that what you're doing is promoting um, any kind of transplant. Um, People may have heard of kidney, lungs and heart Perhaps and Perhaps they haven't heard so much about uh, uh, bone marrow and uh, stem cell.
2: Where can people go if they want to register to donate?
0: Well, as I, as I say, if, if they just literally Google or search um, how to become a uh, a bone marrow or stem cell uh, donor, that that will that will come up. I'm sure. Um, there's Anthony Nolan, uh, who are um, the biggest um, registers of bone marrow and and stem cell uh, potential donors and there's also the NHS and delete blood cancer and I think further afield throughout uh, the whole of the world there's different organisations within their respective countries Um, and uh, I just think it's fantastic. Um, In my case uh, I was diagnosed in well, a long time ago now, uh, it's, it's actually thirty years ago now, um, nineteen ninety-one, and I went to give blood, and it was the time of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and I wanted to do my bit. Um, I couldn't obviously fight. I was a very fit, very fit, uh, extremely fit. Uh, played all all sports, football, uh, rugby, uh, squash, uh, running, you name it, and. Um, and I I went to give blood, fine, 12 weeks later, I went again, and they said, oh, there's something wrong with your blood, and you're anemic, so we can't have your blood, and so, then they said, go and see your doctor within 24 hours. Well, I was young, you know, uh, very much enjoying myself, and I thought nothing of it, I thought, well, if it's that serious, they'd put me in an ambulance, so I just went home and just carried on. Um, but what I found Lewis was that I was just getting so tired I don't know whether you've had that
2: it sounds similar to to my start I know it was different with kidneys but it was right we've done a, it was a blood test in my case rather than donating blood but a blood test it flags up go and see your doctor go to the hospital now
0: mm.
2: and you don't really you don't really know what's going on I don't know if it's the same for you
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, I, did, I didn't really think about it, really. Perhaps I'm a bit daft, um, and you know, on my and Simon, but perhaps I'm a bit simple as well. <laughs> um, but I suppose, like anything, unless it's that serious that it prevents you from doing things, you, you don't, do you? You just carry on. And um, I suppose, for me, I, I mean, I'm still playing football, and I remember the captain, actually, of the team, he said, Simon, what, what's up with you? Where's your energy? You know, I used to play centre midfield and run around and kick everybody, basically. And uh, and yeah, I didn't have that energy level. And I remember playing squash, and I had to stop between points and have a you know a bit of a, a, a breather, which wasn't like me. And what I found was just literally within a, a couple of weeks, uh, I thought, well, I better go and see the doctor. I didn't have any physical signs or anything like that. I didn't have any bruises, which is often a common thing. Um, uh, with, with leukemia, um, uh, blood cancer, as it's called now. And um, so, and I hadn't fainted or anything like that. But but um, I went along to the doctors and they did some more blood tests and uh, they then put me on some iron tablets because my hemoglobin, which gives you all the, the oxygen, um, that was very low. And then um, I was on these iron tablets and I just carried on playing sport, going to work. I lived on my own at the time. I had a flat in Manchester and um, really just carried on, carried on going out, out as well, clubbing you know, at that age. You know, I was 25, 26. And, uh, and, yeah, I was so tired. And then I went back to the doctors. And now looking back, it's only really maybe like self It's When you look back, you realise what was going on and put things in perspective. Yeah. And when I went to the doctors, um, I mean, I was at the point where I was just so tired. I could almost sh- stand up, you know, and fall asleep. A bit like a horse, really. You know, they, they fall asleep. No, they? stood up. And uh, so um, he said, well, we don't really know what it is, but I've arranged for you to go to hospital, Manchester Royal Infirmary, uh, pack your bags. And um, so off I went. And I just packed you know a few boxes of shorts and a few bits um, toiletries and off I went and then I was in there and and it was the time of AIDS actually AIDS was a big thing and 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 they said well we need to test you for something and everything actually because we don't know what it is um, and so they did these these tests and I remember um, I still remember to this day I suppose you you will as well when you first diagnosed with something um, it was dr Colin Geary um, lovely gentleman and he knew I played sports and everything and he and he said to me he said well I'm awfully sorry uh, to tell you uh, it's a one in a million this is but it's not good news um, you you've 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 got something called um, a very rare form of leukemia called aplastic anemia and and um, we need to test your brother very quickly. Um, my brother, Robin, he's two years older, um, in good health. And uh, we need to test him to see whether we can do a bone marrow transplant because because the only cure is a bone marrow transplant for this condition. And, of course, I mean, that just really, you just you just think your world's ended.
2: Yeah, I can see that. You know,
0: you, you're just completely distraught, um, just in the lap of the gods, really.
2: Did it put everything back into perspective, the fact it was one in a million?
0: No, I don't think it really put anything in perspective. It was just a shock, I think. One in a million normally associated associate with winning a lottery ticket or something like that. Um, I, I, I didn't really think about probabilities or anything like that. I think it was just the overwhelming news. Uh, and you start thinking, well, I start thinking, well, why me? You know? There was a relief that it wasn't AIDS. I'm not practicing homosexual or anything like that, which tended to be the case, although that's not the the actual case in reality. But people used to think that it was a horrible stigma. And nobody would have tests of AIDS or they didn't want to. Um, They could test you for everything else. It wasn't that. Um, But it was this thing called, you know, aplastic anemia. I didn't know what that was. We didn't have uh, Google. We didn't have the internet, so you don't. You, there's nowhere to search information. You're totally reliant on the on the doctors and the medical uh, staff, and um, you place your trust in them as as people do, and that's what I, I I did. So I really was listening to them, and and I was like a sponge. Um, my brother was tested, um, quite quickly in a matter of days but unfortunately he was told he, he wasn't a match for me and in those days back in 1991 they only did bone marrow transplants as they called them but i think they call them more now stem cell um they didn't do them for adults uh, the, the the science has moved on now they, they do do them and so they said well we can can give you some kind of treatment um now, at the time, they didn't tell me, but they told my parents, who, who obviously were distraught, as you can imagine, um, that I wouldn't live, really, until I was perhaps 40. If I got to 40, well, that, that would be amazing, very unlikely. Certainly wouldn't get to 50. And um, life's not going to be good. You know, he's not going to be well. He's most probably needing blood transfusions. But they didn't tell me that, thankfully. I'm glad that they didn't. I didn't really want to know it. Um, I was just thinking, "Why? Well, what are they going to do? It was just completely hopeless, really, and uh, just uh, live day by day. Um, as it was, um, I, ha- I had some treatment. I was in hospital for, um, I think it was about eight weeks um, in a room on my own. And in those days, um, n- only one person could go in the room and you had to nominate them and uh, that was other than the cleaner and, and obviously the nurses and the doctors and the consultants. Um, and there was just a, a window uh, to the room um, because they were so worried that you'd get a, an infection um, and all the air was, was sucked out and it was all cleaned. And so, so people just used to look through the window. Um, they've changed things now because they know psychologically that's just so tough on people I have to say it was tough. I mean it was it was almost you feel like you're a prisoner. You you, you can't go out um because of risk of infection. So I, know I was strapped to a machine and um receiving these this medication and I was getting sick and it was you know it was diarrhea, it was, oh, I was in a right mess, not eating properly. Um I had something called um what's it called? Um Uh, lymphocyte globulin it's called lymphocyte globulin and and that was the extract of a a horse Um, and uh, some serum horse serum or something like that mixed with some other things Um, and uh, I I had a a reaction you have a a reaction to this um, it's called serum sickness temperatures you know uh, sweating not sleeping uh, I mean, it was pretty horrendous, really.
2: Was that a treatment attempt?
0: Yeah, that's a treatment. that's they, they hope that that will um, restore the bone marrow to, you know, maybe fully fun- functioning, ideally, but but at least some functioning, so that you're not re- reliant on blood transfusions and platelets. And in my case, I uh, I managed to get out of hospital. I mean, I was lucky because whilst I was in. I still remember to this day, um, in those days, the ward had a mixture of of children, uh, uh, male and female. And um, uh, there was a little boy next door. Um, uh, I always remember it. Um, uh, His his name was was Jonathan. And I remember asking the nurse, you know, and he'd he'd come in with his football kit, in in his Manchester United football kit and um i asked the nurse how uh how, how is um how, how is he how is um jonathan and he said and the nurse said said unfortunately well he didn't actually say anything and that's often the case with with nurses you know they're so good they're wonderful compassionate and caring um but essentially he hadn't pulled through and um and he you know little boy been playing playing football uh, with his mates, uh, got a knock, rushed in, and often it's bruising with um, leukemia, where the signs of the bruising, but they don't, they don't, um, they don't settle down, they don't resolve themselves, um, and because the platelets are so low. Now, in my case, my platelets were were six. I was told by uh, Professor Colin Geary, uh, which. Uh, is a lot less than it should be. It should be about between 150 to 300. Um, and that that um, that really supports your bruising, how to recover properly. And when I look back, I'd had I'd had two black eyes. Um, and I hadn't had a, you know, no one had smashed me in the face or anything like that. But I'd just been playing football. I must have had a knock. And I remember going to work and people obviously looking at me thinking, you know, what's he been up to? And and I hadn't been up to anything, I'd just been playing. But once you have a knock, there's no coping mechanism for your, um, if you have any bruising. So my platelets were like really low, ridiculously low. So there was a danger that if I had a knock, then I'd cut myself and then it would just carry on bleeding and I'd have a brain hemorrhage. Um, And then also my my, uh, hemoglobin was was six as well, which should be between, for male, between 13 and 15. So I was, I was just operating on such a low base, you know I was, I was like 10 percent of,
2: a, of, a, of an engine. So did all any bruises just spread massively?
0: Yeah, bruises can spread, and, and apparently one of the signs is that you, you can just have uncontrolled um, little specks and bruising. Um, and um, I, I remember I remember Colin Geary, the, the doctor consultant him saying to me he said I know you play football and, uh, and rugby you know and, and they're great games particularly rugby but I don't want you doing that um stick to cycling he said and I thought oh, cycling is boring I don't want to be doing cycling um so and I laughed about it at the time because I, I used to go back to the hospital at Manchester really firmly. after I came out I could still remember to this day I walked down the stairs my mum picked me up and I walked down the stairs, and I, I was struggling, I couldn't even walk. I was so weak trying to get down the stairs. And I still, I can still picture it now, me walking down the stairs. And my mum said, you know, I've got the car in the car park. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't far away. Um, but I went out, and I went outside, and I smelt the petrol. And it was disgusting. and And you could, because your senses are so sensitive, especially when you've been in a uh, controlled environment where everything's been cleansed and the air's been um, cleansed, and so there's n- there's no impurities at all. So you're susceptible to everything. But uh, my taste um, was was obviously heightened and smell uh, as a result of all this conditioning. And but I was so weak, and and I, I and I, I remember looking at my legs and think, well, you know, I used to be, you know. Pretty powerful playing football and rugby and running, and they were just like skeletons. Really, I'd lost a lot of weight, um, and uh, then really began a, a journey of recovery. But what I said to myself is, if ever I have to go back into hospital again, I won't just, you know, wait for the doctors and the medics to tell me what to do, um, and and I just committed to them, really, just massive action on how can I get myself better? Will I get better? And it's down to me. You know, if it's to be, it's up to me. Um, I, you know. And I really believe in that um, because if you've got that force, that that drive, then you're halfway there. Uh, and, and if you're waiting for other people to tell you what to do and, and uh, you know, it, it, it really is a tough, tough game. And it was, while I was in, it, it was like war. You know, And I'd encourage anyone, if, if they're in a situation, a really tough situation, um, think of those people who, who are worse off than yourself. Think of the people who are in pain constantly and how they get through it. And they'll find a way. And, and, and it's, the, it's this inner strength that I'm sure a lot of people who have had a transplant, uh, somehow they find it or, or they've had a major setback. Um, because hope is, is so important. And if you give up hope, then then really, it's it, it, real tough. And I just thought, well, how lucky am I? I've, I've had some treatment. I could have died. Um, and I didn't know that um, my life was going to be very short or anything like that. I just thought, right, I'm going to get myself back to work. Cause, you know, I, I need to get back to work. I had a flat, I've got a mortgage. Um, and, I, you know, I haven't got anyone else to to do it, I was lucky that um, my mum was around, my dad was around, and I had some support, um, quite honestly, I know people have had transplants, and they've lost everything, you know, I know someone who had a pub, three kids running his pub, and he lost all his business, um, you know, and, and there's nothing there to pick you up, um, and, and in my case, my priority was just to get, get healthy, uh, and that's what I started doing, I started reading everything, And I started working on my physical health to begin with.
2: I think that's the right mindset to have because when you do take ill and you're not really sure what the prognosis is, what the outcome is going to be, you do realise what is the most important thing to you. You have that re-evaluation and rethink and health becomes number one, family becomes number one and just, as you said, getting through each day as they come and just trying to make as much progress as you can to get better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and obviously you've gone through it, Lewis, and I think all of us, no matter who we are, um, health. And I was the classic, you know, I was the classic. I was out partying, enjoying myself, you know. I used to go. I used to go to clubbing on a Tuesday, out on a Friday, out on a Saturday, Eight, ten 10 pints, you know, wasn't uncommon on a Friday, Saturday, um go for a curry afterwards um you know that that was the mentality i think uh, in certainly in the uh, what was it early 90s i was in manchester 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 you know home of the hacienda big club scene uh work hard play hard that was you know age 25 26 um and uh you know the culture was a bit of a drinking culture and, and play hard work hard um and, uh, you know, why not? And I didn't know any different. Uh, and um, yet, for me, what it really started me to think about is, 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 number one, health. Because if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. That's the starting point. If you haven't got your health, you can't go to work. If you haven't got your health, you know, you, you can't go out. You know, you just can't do anything, can you? And And family i think as you say you know it's great to have friends and but family if you've got family and really close friends i mean i can count and i'm sure a lot of people can i can count on one hand the people who really you know when it came to it offered help and
1: and uh, you know i
0: was quite quite i'm a very sociable person and um and I think a lot of people find that. It, 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 you start reevaluating things, as you say. And, and um, you know, if someone who hasn't got any family or any support, I mean, it must be so tough for people. I really admire people who have, have gone, you know, against the existing environment or whatever and, and done tremendous things in their life um, through that, that drive. And, and, and it's, I think it's so important.
2: We'll move on to the actual bone marrow transplant. The, the first of two, spoiler alert. Uh, what was the process of finding a donor? I know you said your brother was worked up.
0: Yeah, well, in my case, um, I mean, I carried on working and everything. And and um, I was having blood transfusions um, post my initial tra- treatment in 1991. And then, um, I mean, I, you know, carried on and I, was, I ran the London Marathon. Um, I, I think about six times during that time and and yet in, in when we got to 2000 again um had a similar type of treatment uh this anti-lymphocyte globulin uh, and i'd moved down to oxford um i'd worked i was working for nat west for their, their in their business school um essentially a teaching and facilitator but what they um said was it uh, got to 2011 and um things were not looking good, um, I was need starting to need, um, or that my blood counts had gone so low again, I think before I said to you, uh, my haemoglobin was, was six, but it, it had gone up to about, um, uh, I think about 12, so it was quite reasonable, and my platelets had gone up to uh, about 40, uh, which was okay. But once they go to about thirty your platelets, um, that's a concern, and you might need blood uh, platelet transfusions. And if your hemoglobin generally, if it goes below ten, then again you might need blood transfusions. So the the signs were there. had always been monitored, um, going for regular checkups, and, and that's the beauty of it. I think if you're diagnosed with anything, you you get you're in the system. You know, we're so lucky in our country having the NHS. They're fantastic. Um, really are and so so what the consultant said to me um, around 2011 I think it was he said well things are not looking so good Um, what I think we need to do is put you on the register Um, because um, if things get to the stage where you're needing blood transfusions always what 46 something like that 46 um, you, you know, you will need a, and I knew that the only cure was a, a bone marrow transplant. And so we, he said, we're going to put you on the list. Um, we'll go on the register, appealing really for, for for someone to come forward. And what they do is they look at your uh, body tissue type and to see if there's someone on the list as a potential donor who who is a good match. And the ideal match is is is, is 10 out of 10. And so they started searching in in, in 2011, I think it was about the January, and by the, um, it took about six, nine months, um, uh, and I was in close um, contact with my consultant, and really, you are, you know, you're just waiting, life's so uncertain, and thinking, well, will they find anybody? What happens if they don't find anyone? And my parents had then told me um, later on, um, you know, I got married, I've got a son. Um, and uh, he was what, uh, he was about 11 at the time. I was, so, you know, so lucky that, you know, to see my son grow up, to get married. All this, all this was extra time that I never thought I'd have. Um, so I was so grateful. But um, they, they found two people, um, believe it or not. Amazingly, uh, one person in the, in the States, um, and, no, sorry, we're not in the States. i was confused. When you've had chemo, Lewis, it doesn't affect your memory, I, I tell you. It really does, especially when you're getting on like me a bit. Um, and um, they found someone in, 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 in England who apparently was doing quite a lot of work in the States. Right. And they said, as a potential donor, they said, unfortunately, no, I can't commit uh, to coming into hospital they obviously, they need to have tests, medical tests, because they need to check that they're um, medically fit and healthy. Because um, it is a very complex uh, procedure, putting someone else's um, stem cells or bone marrow into, into another human. Um, and, but very fortunately, they found someone else. So they didn't just find one, they found two people in my case. And some people never get that opportunity. And they found someone um, in Germany. Now I didn't know this person. All I knew, they found someone, and I thought, "Wow, you know, wow, this this is, you know, I've got a chance. There's a possibility." Um, and and uh, I didn't even think about, "Well, will it work?" Because I, I, I don't know. I suppose I you just grasp what, what might be, and then look at the possibilities. I, I just I suppose I. I've become immune to almost thinking negatively I always think positively
2: for hope again
0: yeah yeah and and, and I and, and that's something and I think part of that is the fact that I used to um, you know I've read widely uh, uh, of, of about successful people about people who have had major setbacks and and also in in life and in business and I used to teach personal development and and leadership, uh, all about leadership and uh, winning mentality uh, at the business school. Um, so, so it was almost like in the DNA. Um, and I've always been, you know, someone who wants to win and wants to achieve the best you can be and be your best and, and search for excellence. Um, that, that's what I'm about. And, and um, anyway, they, they found someone miraculously. Um, And so then it was a race. It was really a race against time. How quickly could this donor make themselves available? How quickly could they be tested? How quickly could I be tested? So I'd go, uh, I went through um, all the tests that you could imagine, um, uh, chest X-rays and whatever it was, all the blood tests um, that they do. And then looking to get that, um, uh, get it ready. Obviously, I I needed to protect myself and not get a cold or get get, get ill. Um, I was actually carrying on playing sports. I mean, I was okay to do sports. I was actually doing karate. Perhaps I shouldn't have been doing (laughs) karate. But my son was doing karate and my wife was doing karate and we did it as a family. Um, And we all got our black belts, which was fantastic. Um, And I suppose... uh, like, you know, most things, you you just carry on as best you can, got to get to work, and um, anyway, so in 2012, uh, I remember I was working at a school, and I went into the school, and I, the head wasn't there that day, and it was just before the Christmas break, Uh, and I'd been told that I would be going in for a bone marrow transplant, but they couldn't give you a date, I mean, they don't say, yeah, you'll be going in on, say, the 5th of january because the bed situation is they don't know they really don't know it's that critical um and so you really just have to be you know you just have to you're just glad of anything really just wait and see and so so i i was told i was going in that at some point perhaps in january but they weren't too sure when
2: does that make it difficult to to prepare for it, it well it is with well mentally
0: because um I was. I'm in a situation, and maybe a lot of people can relate to this. Where where you're employed in a job, the the last thing you want to do is say to people, you know, your employer, actually, I, I'm going in for a, a major operation, and I might not act, might not live, and I might not come back. Um, equally, I hadn't told them; they knew that I'd had leukemia in the past, but I'd been fit and well. I'd been at work. I'd never had a day off sick, um, apart from in. 2000, um, uh, 2000, when I had some treatment, which I said in back in Oxford, I just didn't know, I wasn't sick, you know. It wasn't the case of I had a um, condition where I kept having to be uh, off. I might have to have some, uh, I didn't need any blood transfusions, you see. So I, I was lucky and, and outwardly, uh, um, and I suppose I was a bit guarded that I didn't really want to let my guard down because I felt it was a weakness. Um, You know, I think if you're with an employer that's very supportive and things have changed, a lot of employers are not a lot more switched on now, but it was a bit like mental health. I mean, if you were told you had cancer in those days, it was almost like a death sentence. And and I've read, you know, I've read about this, that they reckon even now, if you've been diagnosed with cancer, your chance of getting another job are about as as good as a, a criminal. Right. You know, that a criminal record i mean that needs to change but i can understand from employers point of view if you're in a business and you've only got five employees say and i'm a critical employee employee and i say well actually i've got cancer or i've got leukemia or whatever well they're going to be thinking well he's not going to be around he's not going to be much use he's going to be off sick you know i've got a business to run so I was lucky. I was in a school, and, I, and I, but I hadn't told them. Uh, but I had a duty, obviously, because I, I did an important job. I was a work experience coordinator there, and all these kids were relying on me. So I, I went into the to the head's office, and the deputy was there, and I, I said to the deputy, Chris Sammons, his name, lovely job, and I just said, I'm I'm office, sorry to tell you, um, you know that I had leukemia in the past, and, and and I've been for appointments uh, recently but I'll be away from um, school for a while because um, I've got to go in for a bone marrow transplant uh, in January. Um, and what was great, uh, Lewis, was that um, Chris, actually his dad, had had uh, leukaemia. Um, and so straight away, there was that, that empathy there. And I think most people find this in anything, don't they? Whether it's cancer, whether it's transplant, whatever it is, mental health. Actually, when you open up, it's surprising, and it's it's so positive. Most people, would know somebody. I mean, now cancer. I mean, one in two of us are expected to have cancer during a lifetime. But in those days, even in in two thousand eleven. I mean, you know, nineteen ninety one was the first diagnosed. It was known as the big C. People didn't talk about cancer. People still have a stigma about it. And it's got better. But anyway, so I, I just said, look, I, I don't know whether even I'll get through it. I, I, I might not come back at all. I might be dead. But the chances are I'll be off. Now, I'd been off previously when I'd had some treatment for about um, three months each time and then got back uh, to work at uh, full capacity. And I, the expectation was that I was going to be off for at least six months Um anyway if it went well Um, and the head was fantastic and a lady called Julia Morris who unfortunately is no longer with us and her brother uh, when I spoke to her on on the telephone she was so supportive and she she said you know her brother had sadly died through leukemia Um, and so uh, I was left thinking well I don't need to worry about the school you know I've covered that now I've told them so I felt a bit better, I suppose, it was as better as you can do, the fact that you're going in for some major operation, but I was scared stiff. You know, I can remember packing my bag, going, going, I got a lift there. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I, I had to have what's known as, a, I can't even remember what it's called now, a lining, uh, and they put the lining in your in your, in your heart, going from your heart, uh, which, which uh, enables them to put blood um, liquids, because often you get dehydrated. Um, saline, uh, uh, which is put into you when you um, when you're in there, and also the the medication. So so they put this thing in, and it's a bit awkward. You've got to keep it clean, and and, and anyway. So I arrived there, Manchester, um, Oxford. Sorry, it was Oxford uh, Radcliffe Top Hospital. I've been under the same consultant, uh, Dr. Tim Littlewood, for. Um, about 10 years um, now. And, and he, you know, very supportive. And I was, you know, here we go again, I thought. Um, Let's go. And, and, and I, But I, you know, there's a bit of bravado, but you just think, when they close that door, you know, the first night, you really just think, God dear, how am I going to get through this? Um, and then it just starts, doesn't it? it you know, you, you, I suppose your natural defense mechanism and your fighting spirit kicks in so when i was in i took the view that every day my target was just to get up have a shower and get dressed and get some food down me and initially i had to have chemo and that was brutal
2: Is that in prep for the bone marrow transplant
0: yeah yeah i think it was about five days and they say, you know, we've decided on your conditioning and they keep you informed, but you don't really know what's happening. You, you just really just respond. You're just sitting there um, and uh, it's just day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute um, survival mode. And, you know, and that's what I'd recommend to anybody. You know, don't look ahead in terms of... Um, and don't think about all these other things. Yeah, it's good to focus on the possibilities of and think about what you might be able to do. But really, it's just concentrate on today. You know, today, can I get up? Yeah. I mean, I know there was when I was in, there was a chap um just down the corridor. We didn't have any contact with other people. We, we we're in isolation again. It's got a bit better that you know people could come in, but they're all ganged up, a bit like now with with the with uh, this COVID, you know, um, uh, with a gown and with a mask and um, because of risk of infection, they don't want to give you anything. You couldn't see anyone who had a cold or anything like that. They weren't allowed in. Um, my son, um, he, w- he was allowed in. But again, you know, for a li- little boy coming in wearing a mask, well, it's not good, is it? And also seeing all the stuff going on, um, seeing your dad being ill and being sick, um so we and also he had school to do so you know we were living in warwick which is about an hour or so from oxford he had to get he was at school my wife's got a job she's a, he's a solicitor and a firm of solicitors um lodders in stratford you know very busy demanding role and even though the, the the employers are very supportive um she was with another employer at the time and they were very supportive she could take as much time as she want but off but you don't do you? you just you know you want to do what you do and try and keep things as normal as possible and in my case I thought my job was to get out of there um, but first I was going to have this bone marrow transplant and, and, and all I knew was that it's going to be five days if everything goes well I mean things could go wrong I mean what happens is they rely on somebody in Germany to come to have the procedure they take their blood they then that blood is like gold dust i mean that is my potential life that's that's what i need well can you believe it well that's taken i think by volunteers on an aeroplane you know i think it was ham i think it was i think it was uh, was hamburg or frankfurt i don't honestly know don't know any details it was then shipped over and then i still remember this day the nurse um, walking on the ward and then coming in into my room and she said, it's here, we've got it. And and then she put it up on the drip and it it was, and she said, it's a lot. I mean, they didn't know whether it was gonna be enough. I don't know what enough was, but anyway, they said it's three and a half liters. I thought, oh great, that looks a lot. And then that needs to go in me. And um, so then they, obviously they're testing your blood pressure all the time, um, just to see that there isn't any reaction. And in my case, it normally apparently takes about four to six hours. Well, I was having uh, having a major temperature. I was having high blood pressure, so they had to stop it. Uh, it took. I mean, this nurse, I mean, she was wonderful. She sat with me all that time through the night. I mean, can you imagine that? She had a a family to get home to. But she said, no, I want to stay with you. I mean, the dedication
2: of the very good.
0: Oh, I mean, it, it fills me up just talking about it. the dedication, of the nurses uh, and the cleaning staff and the porters, everybody is incredible. And um, so eventually it went through me, you know. And so you saw the last bit of it, you know, and you're trying to get every drop into you and it, and it just goes in. And then if anyone had a blood transfusion or any liquids into them, they know, or platelets. And, um, and then that's it. Then they take the drip down. And then it's a waiting game, Lewis. You're on what they call day zero. Yeah. And day zero is really, it's like like you started your life again. It's like, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to describe because your whole um, focus is on will these blood counts go up? And day zero is when you've got no immune system at all. You're very vulnerable. A lot of people just don't get to that stage. They don't get the opportunity. They don't get a donor. Um, you know, I was told I had about 30, 40% chance of dying through the procedure. That's quite high. I didn't know this, but I've been told that with, you know, and, I, and now I've gone into schools and, and colleges and universities and talked and I've tried to give give potential donors the the facts so that they can decide whether they want to uh, register and be a potential donor and save someone. Um, But I I know know now that only about one in, I think it's one in three, one in three people who go through um, a transplant, whether it's during the process, uh, during the procedure or uh, after the procedure, but within about 12 months, one in three um, die.
2: It's high again. It's very high
0: I was told I had about 30, 40% of dying just through the procedure, because you what happens is most people, they get an infection and that the body can't find that infection. Antibiotics won't work. They only work to a certain extent, but if you haven't got an immune system, you, you are relying on, you know, your immune system. And I, I'd do anything a bit like now COVID. I mean, I know people, you know, take it seriously. And obviously the medics do, but a lot of people aren't taking it as seriously as they should. I mean, I was just paranoid about it. Um, you know, at home, for instance, I wasn't allowed any, anybody to visit, um, anyone with a cold, any pets. I mean, okay, if you've got pets, you've got to obviously you know, carry on with that. But, you know, if someone came to the house, they'd have a gel. Uh, I mean, we didn't have any visitors. I didn't have any visitors. You know, people assume that you're okay once you're out of hospital. Yeah. But the reality is that's when the hard work starts. It really does. It really does. So I was on day zero and they won't let you out of hospital until your blood counts are at a safe level that you don't need readmitting. Um and in my case uh, the blood counts went up a little bit but they weren't going up as much as I'd hoped. And so I was you know I was really worried but they did let me out. It was my. I think I I went in on something like the fifth of January. Had the transplant on the tenth. Uh, was it tenth eighteenth of January? I think it was, and then I came out just before my birthday. It was my fifth. My birthday's on the fifteenth of February, um, and I remember thinking, Will I get home to celebrate my birthday? For you know, what was it worth anyway? Just the fact that
2: it's
1: nice to be
0: home, isn't it? You know, uh, and you feel just uh, you know, but actually, you're a burden. When you're at home, it's hard work, just getting up the stairs, down the stairs, you know, people have got a—you know their lives to live, and, and you feel a bit of a burden, really. And I just thought, well, my priority is just just really just sit about all day and try and get myself a bit fitter. I mean, while I was in the hospital, I was doing, you know, standing up. I couldn't do a proper press-up. I'd just stand up and try and do a little press-up. I'd, I'd also do, I didn't do squats or anything, that was out of the equation. Couldn't do a lunge. You know, I was actually marching on the spot and I used to keep myself a little diary and I'd write down if it was the day and I'd put something like, if I'd done 10 press-ups, I'd put 10p. And then if I'd if i done marching on the spot, I mean, you know, I might do it for 30 seconds, say, on the hour, say, four times a day or three times a day. But I was just so tired, uh, there was... And and then I, and I carried on that when I, when I came out, you know, I I just had a little diary, so each day it was a little a little something that I could a sense of achievement.
2: Right. So that transplant you got out of hospital once your recovery had had got going, that transplant unfortunately was unsuccessful, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it it it, it failed. I mean, I can still remember going because what happened with me is um. The blood counts didn't go up enough that i didn't need blood transfusions and platelets and so i i was going into i was able to drive i don't know i was able to drive myself to be honest but i was driving down to oxford oxford um, churchill it was at this time um and and i was requiring to have uh, three times a week um uh, each time i was going in i was having three bags of blood and normally um, say one bag of platelets my platelets had to be um, what's known as irradiated I think I don't know much about it but they were special type of platelets and and so every week I and for about nine ten weeks I would literally my life existed with basically going down three times a week uh, sitting there for about Oh, best part of I'll get there for say eight o'clock. I get stuck in the traffic if you know Oxford, it's really bad for traffic. Um, and I get there to the hospital and I'd hope that they got some blood. Uh, Some days they didn't have any blood, and you have to wait around. And there'd be other people there, some people have been doing this for you know 10 15 years. Um, and you just sit around and you and I'd have. Uh, as I say each week I'd have about nine bags of blood and one or two bags of platelets if they were available Um, but the reality was they didn't know what to do with me and and I remember the consultant having a chat with him and he said he said I will get you better and I always remember this uh, Dr Tim Littlewood super super gentleman and um, and I trusted him but I did start thinking well, I had that transplant, it failed. How can you get me better? Yeah, He looked at uh, the options and he, he thought that it was the donor. We'd have to see if we can get another donor. Well, they have gone through all this search, international database, and they found two, but actually one couldn't make it and one that they tried. So I thought, I was starting to think, mm, my time's up, you know, uh, I've had it, I'm dying. I really did.
2: How do you stay mentally strong through that? Uh, As strong as he can be.
0: I don't know. I think, I think the fact that, um, you know, I don't really know how. Uh, Whether you blot it out, um, because it it, it's a bit like a you know a big monster that can take over your life, and you're paralysed. You are really paralysed if you allow that thought, because you you know you just you just can't do anything because you just think what's the point why should I bother you know and, and, and you might feel like a bit of a burden to society and a burden to your friends and family and no really wants you and what is it worth being around and you know I mean I actually went on a um, didn't really have any proper counselling in those days um, the, I mean the medics were superb and there were people but resources are so strapped to be honest um, in terms of any support apart from you know the life and death stuff, which is fantastic, um, and so I don't really know. I, I think a lot of that stemmed from perhaps my own childhood, um, just growing up, and also a lot of reading around positive thinking, um, positive mindset, uh, and and this inner belief that it you know the the subconscious is so important. And, 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 you know, if, if you think negative thoughts and you think the worst, then it, it's almost encouraging those things to grow. Whereas if you think the positive things, it's like sowing little seeds. If, you know, it's gardening time now around spring, isn't it? Well, if you're about to sow your seeds and you haven't cleared out all the garden and all the rubbish and all the weeds, and then you allow those weeds to take over, you're not going to have a harvest. And it's the same in the mind, you know, I'm a great believer that if if you're thinking positively, uh, you choose what you read about, you choose what you watch on TV or nowadays you listen on podcasts. Um, that's a choice, a personal choice, as opposed to react. And, and and there's a great, I mean, there's a great book, which is a multi-million seller, you know, I think third, uh, something like 20 million sold Um the, the, the seven habits of highly effective people uh, stephen covey and, and and i used to teach some of some of as part of some of our programs we used a lot of his 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 work uh, you know the seven habits and the first habit i can't remember the oh the first is 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 first things first mm-hmm. and, and 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 first things first is think of yourself Get yourself in shape a bit like you were saying lewis health number one if you've got your health you've got chances you've got a possibility if you haven't got your health really tough and you might start relying on other people and we are in. you know we're all independent no one's an island um however you've got to. you know if you can do your bit uh, it makes it so much easier and uh, and also, I think self-preservation comes in. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you know, if, if you've gone through a range of illness, and you've got the nurses, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I didn't have to have a feeding tube. Um, whereas I know if you know if things get so bad and you're not eating enough and you're not getting enough nutrients, you have to have a feeding tube. Now, I didn't want that. Um, and also, you know, if you can't get out of bed, there was, there was a, um, a, a, a gentleman two, 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 two rooms down, I remember, um, and he couldn't get out of bed. He came in, again, he came in his football kit, um, and he'd had a knock, and he got him into hospital, and he he was so physically, you know, strong when he came in. I saw him. But within a few days, a few weeks, that same person was like just so weak and he couldn't get out of bed so he had the nurses you know washing him cleaning him go to the toilet I I didn't have that I was, you know, I was lucky that I was able to do the basic physical things and I, and I suppose you know something was I suppose it was primal more than anything and I, and I just thought come on Simon it's down to me and I, and I think also I can draw strength from the fact that when I first went in uh you know, as a very youngish man, you know, 26, 25, whatever it was, in 1991, I'd had that, that experience of being in hospital for six, eight weeks and recovering. And I'd had it again in 2000. And so part of me was saying and kicking in, I don't want this to happen again. It's so bad. I don't want to have that ever again. You know, when, you, when you've when you experienced something or whatever it is, a major trauma, you'll do anything, I think, to stop yourself from yeah. going into that um, situation again. Well, that's my view anyway.
2: Absolutely. I, I agree. So moving on to the second transplant, was it the same donor again?
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, what happened, Lewis, was um, the consultant, and, 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 you know, I have to really admire his, his, his courage because I think he was a bit of a at, at a loss because, you know, I asked him a question before I had a transplant, and this is a question I'd encourage anybody to ask who's going through any major illness. I asked him before I was about to have a transplant because remember, in my case, it wasn't that desperate. They were almost taking the view, if you have your transplant now, your expectation of life is going to be a lot much better and you could have normalcy in terms of life expectancy. However, if you don't have one, You'll be requiring blood transfusions. You'll get weak. And the chances are you might die. And it'd be too late to have a transplant. Because you have to be reasonably healthy to have the transplant. Yeah. You know, in some cases, they won't give you the transplant. Um, And so, in my case, I asked the consultant, um, what would you do? Would you have the transplant? You know, I was still uh, going to work. I was a bit of jogging. But I I was starting to get weak again, very weak. Um, So I knew the writing was on the wall and he said to me, well, do you know what? I think you'll look back in three or four months and think what was all the fuss about. Those are the exact words he said. I think you'll look back in three or four months and think what was all the fuss about. Now, those comments to me at the time were uplifting. Because I thought I'll go in and have this transplant, I'll come out and recover, and in three to four months I'll be back at work, I'll be back playing a sport. Life's good. So why wouldn't I? I've got the assurance from a top consultant that life's gonna be good. Yes, I was given the you know, I had to sign a, a form to say about the risk. Yeah. But I didn't really think, and it never really entered my mind too much, I'm going to die. I didn't really think, do you know what, actually, it might not work. I was just thinking, well, let's get in here, let's get on with it. And if it doesn't work, well, it's not like a plushcare.com slash weight loss to do about it anyway it's outside my control so the consultant uh, after it hadn't worked and he was thinking perhaps we need a new donor i was referred to the top specialist a lady called doctor or professor judith marsh at king's college london uh, king's college hospital which is one of the top places in the world Uh, and she is uh, the, um, the leading um expert on aplastic anemia and i went to see um judith as i call her lovely lady and she's told me that uh, i've been lucky you know just to get through the procedure Um, but she said it wasn't the donor Uh, the donors donors a good match we need to stick with the donor if they're prepared to come forward again but it was your conditioning you, your conditioning. We need to change the conditioning. Now she didn't say it was the wrong conditioning, but when I came out there, I was very angry, very angry uh, indeed. Because I you can imagine I've just been through hell and back, all that suffering, all that time, and you know putting my life on the line to something, which really, if If she was involved first time, uh, there was a better chance. But the fact was, it would have never worked. And she told me that. Um, And, you know, and to this day, I suppose I'm thinking, crikey, you know, how could someone make that decision? But the consultant, in fairness to the consultant, followed the UK guidelines. They were the guidelines at the time. He didn't know this extra information that, you know, it's such a complex thing. And she said, well, actually, yeah. And and I would, I, in fairness, I'd been given the option. I had been told, would you like your transplant in Oxford or would you like transplant at King's? And I said, what was the difference? And, and I was told, well, there won't be any difference. It's just, which is more convenient for you? Which would you prefer, knowing that King's is the specialist area? Uh, and I just said, well Oxford, because it's it's low it's more local, I might you know more chance from a visitor you know if I get a visitor, then it's easier for them um so I thought, well, if I go to London, which is three hours away um you know driving potentially or on the train, then I might not have anyone to see, see me, and I'll be in six, eight weeks at least you know because they tell you you're likely to be in I know someone was in about three weeks and now. But, it, you know it could be six eight weeks it could be three four weeks it could be could be months I know someone was in for a whole year and who had I think three three transplants so you don't know so I chose Oxford um and uh, good faith and I'm glad I did you know but then um, I was set to go to Kings and, and and I went in Oh, I had my chemo again and it was and thankfully the new donor uh, not the new donor so the the previous donor, I don't know anything about that person. All I know, I did sneak my, my notes one day when the, when the nurse uh, was out and she'd left the file. I thought, as you do, you know, I'm so inquisitive, I suppose, a bit nosy really. And I thought, right, I'll have a look. And I had a look and it, all it said was, I think it was 24 year old male German donor. That's all I got to know. and um, And I can't thank that person enough. I've never met them or anything, but, they saved my life. And anyway, and then it was the 10th of July, 2012, that again. And this time, the nurse came in, and I always remember it. And, and previously, it was, bear in mind that the, the bone marrow was three and a half uh, 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 bags, uh, three and a half litres of blood. She came in, and she said, there's not really that much here. There's only about <laughs> a litre and a half. And straight away, I thought, bloody hell, I've had it. Last time, it's and was three and a, three and a half. And it failed this time. It's about a liter and a half. It's not a lot, is it? Do you know what I mean? And there was that doubt, and oh dear. And then, and then you just you know you just sit there. This time it took about four or five hours uh, to go through my system, and it was day zero again. And off we go.
2: The determination to go again, has to come back.
0: Yeah, yeah. And 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 my blood counts um, started coming up um, gradually, very gradually. I used to go to King's, uh, King's College. Uh, I couldn't go on public transport. I was told not to go on public transport because of risk of infection. Um, So they they arranged for some transport. And and I I was very thankful. But I had no idea half the time what time this this transport was going to pick me up. You know, it could be five in the morning or six in the morning or uh, seven. And I had to get down there. And, and, and there'd be, say, someone from Anglesey or somewhere like that. And they'd be in the same car with me. And the idea was that we were meant to, you know, avoid any infection. And then we'd pick someone up, say, in Northampton. And then on the way back, we do, you know, similar. Uh, and long days. Um, but, but anyway, and, and then, you know, then my count started coming up. And, um, and, and, and actually, in my case, I was so lucky, Lewis, because when I was in hospital, um, we had tickets. It was 2012. It was the London Olympics. There was a buzz around London. I can still remember, you know, the, um, the flame, the torch.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, that goes around the country. Well, whilst I was in hospital, the torch, uh, you know, they came past King's college and they were going outside. Well, my window was, well, I had a little window, uh, which was over the car park. I didn't see anything or anything, but I remember a lot of excitement. But we had tickets. We had tickets for the Super Saturday. Tickets for the 100 metres. The big day. Usain Bolt, right? And when I first went into hospital, I remember speaking to Michelle Kenyon, a lovely lady. She's the uh, bone marrow coordinator nurse. And I said to her, um, bearing in mind I was going in in early July, I said, what's the chances of me getting out for the Olympics? And she said, she looked at me and she said, no chance. And so, whilst I was in, my main driver was I'm going to get in. And even while I was in, I watched, I don't know, it brings tears to my eyes now. I watched uh, Rowan Atkinson. I don't know that it's beyond you, but you weren't even born. I don't know. Oh, you were born, weren't you? I don't know where you saw it. He was he was messing about playing the piano, um, uh, and it was the opening ceremony. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And
0: I, I was, I don't know, I was watching. I was so tired though; I couldn't watch it all. Um, I had a little TV in my room and I watched it, uh, a bit of it. And, and I, I got onto, um, I got onto the London Olympics. I, I'd, 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 volunteered actually to be a, be a, um, ambassador and I'd been accepted to be, to be an ambassador for the London Olympics, um, as a volunteer, but I couldn't do it because of, um, obviously risk of infection the consultant said, no, you can't do it. Um. I suppose it's me, you know, setting high goals. And I wanted to, you know, just be part of something special uh, in London. I thought, well, they're never going to be there again in my lifetime. Last time was in, what was it, 1946 or something. And so uh, I couldn't do that. But I had tickets. So I was so excited. We got them through the ballot. And uh, I got on to uh, the Olympics and I said, is there any chance? I'm in mean, a hospital. I'm having a transplant. I got on to the organisers. They were fantastic, the organisers. And they said, "Yeah, um, we'll we'll get you. Uh, you know, if you can get to um, Stratford, where the Olympics were, the stadium, uh, we'll arrange for security for you to drive you and your wife to drive and your son to drive through. Because in those days they had almost like a lockdown with the with the mm-hmm. transport system. Um, uh, and uh, they said we'll arrange for your security. We'll also get a golf cart because I wasn't physically able to walk um, uh, particularly well at all." To, to the stadium and get you to the seat. And um, so we went down there, we drove down there and we went straight through, right next to the stadium. And I remember them saying, you know, do you need a... And I, I was fortunate, I was able to walk and I can still remember it to this day, walking to the stadium. Obviously you have to go through security, the armed forces are there, fantastic, the soldiers. Uh, and uh, and our seats, our seats were the, were the highest seats at this stadium. <laughs> They we were right at the top of the of the seating, but it was wonderful. That'll get your fitness back. Uh, and uh, that day, to this day, I think I've still got a video clip of when they played the national anthem. You know, it was great. And and so, uh, I mean, me and sport, they just fall in love with each other. I just love it. Uh, sports, just fantastic.
2: We'll move on to that now. Then, so after that, thankfully successful transplant how long did it take you to regain your fitness again afterwards and get back to the sports we're going to come on to today running golf and tennis uh,
0: well i think how long um i i think in terms of i set myself each day little goals um i reckon it was really about 12 months to 18 months you know i mean i couldn't walk to the phone box which is only uh, what 300 yards away. Um, so I just, again, set myself little, little targets. I started walking. I carried on with, um, I mean, it was a fantastic uh, physio, who's a friend of ours, um, Sarah Reeves in Sheffield, who works at the NHS, looks after about 50 physios. And she um, she said, do lunges. So I started doing lunges, and I couldn't do one to begin with. And I worked up, and I, after about six months, I was doing 50 lunges on each leg. Uh, every day, I had nothing else to do you know, I wasn't going back to work I couldn't because of risk of infection uh, my mission was just to get myself fit and healthy, I was lucky that you know, we had money coming in, we had a roof over our head, we just actually moved to Warwick which is a lovely place and we had a, you know, we could have lost everything, could have lost the house you know, everything um, and and I and then I started uh, jogging I went to park run I went to the volunteer to begin with uh, because uh, I couldn't run it and I loved it. I loved the atmosphere. Now, I could go to run because that was outside. Right. Couldn't, I couldn't go to a restaurant, couldn't go to a pub, couldn't go shopping, couldn't go for a meal because uh, I, I might get infection. I used to, you know, I used to carry a gel with me. If there was a knife and fork, if I was out, I went, to, you know, I didn't go to other people's houses, anything like that. Um, but uh, I started jogging. I started going to the park run. I was doing press ups uh, each day. I joined a gym. Uh, everyone active uh, as it is now fantastic so you know very supportive i could go swimming wasn't allowed to go swimming i was on all these drugs i was on about 40 uh tablets or equivalent a day I was on steroids to boost my system i was most probably like you know a man possessed because <laughs> you <watch> steroids <laughs> you, you you do have an extra kick in you but i, I you know i gained weight as well I, I, Put on extra two, three, three stone. I was up to about fifteen stone, whereas normally I'm about eleven stone. And um, but I'd, I'd entered uh, the Warwick Half Marathon, and uh, my wife thought I was bonkers. And and also I entered to go in the London Marathon to run it as a for charity for Anthony Nolan because you know they'd saved my life. I wanted to give something back. Um, and so within within uh, about. I think it was, I think it was, I had the transplant in the July and then the following, uh, that was 2012. It was the following, no, it was about 18 months, almost uh, over 18 months. I did the Warwick Half Marathon. I'd done the park run, but, you, know, you know, initially I did it in about 28 minutes. I couldn't get up the hill. And then I started getting about 25 minutes, started jogging all of it. And then I then I did the Warwick Half Marathon. In March 2014. And I, and I, my wife, I remember Jane, lovely, she was unbelievable to even stick with me, I don't know. Um, but, you know, she said, just don't go mad. And I, you know, but I trained properly, you know, I, I'd done the London Marathon six times before. You know, you can't take things lightly. Like you've got to, you've got to get your nutrition right, get your sleep right, rest right. And, um, and I did that in a time of, uh, I think it was about 138, which is, you know, quite quick, pretty good, um, and uh, and then I had the London Marathon, April, 13th of April, 2014, Uh filling up, just talking about it, one of the best days of my life, uh, and I ran that in 3.13, 3 hours, 13 minutes, 57 minutes, I think,
2: 57 seconds. That is very quick, isn't the tar- The is normally under four hours, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, if you run it all, you should do it under about four and a half hours. I think most people are under five hours, um, you know, club runners, most club runners. are Yeah, most people under four hours, say club runners, you know, good runners, really good runners, elite under three hours. Um, pretty, you know, decent, decent club runners nowadays. Anything under three and a half is, is you know, is pretty good. And, you know, life was good fantastic um i was i was back working then and um uh, but um only six weeks later there is i thought well i'll give my legs a, a rest i won't do the running so much you know recover um and i raised i don't know how much it was about three and a half thousand pounds for auntie nora well that was nothing compared to the transplant it cost about a hundred thousand pounds for a wow um, a transplant apparently um from a, um, uh, uh, not, not a sibling match. Um, and uh, and then I got smashed off my bicycle. Ah, oh. Literally, I'm not a big cyclist, but I got smashed off my bicycle on a lovely day in May. Um, May the 14th. You always remember these things, don't you? You always remember dates. It's a bit like people quitting smoking. They always remember it. I had never smoked in my life. But um, it was May the 14th. I got smashed off. I was left, left for dead. I woke up, I'd been knocked out, someone had hit me apparently at 50, 60 miles an hour on a, just a normal uh, A-road, only about a mile from home, and uh, driven off. And I woke up, and I was in one of those neck braces. Mm-hmm. There was an ambulance there, I can still see it. Two people looking at me, said, you've been involved in an accident, don't move your head, we'll get you to hospital. And I, I honestly thought I'd be paralysed for the rest of my life. You know, I thought it was self-crazy. I've had this transplant. I'm now being knocked off of a bike, rushed into hospital, blue light, and all that. They'd rip my shirt open, put all those little bits on so that they can test your oxygen levels and heart and all that. And I mean, it was so uh, coincidental, but the chap who was in charge of A and E, Atta, he lived opposite us. <laughs> and, uh, he said, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and so. And then he made sure I had all the tests and everything. I went under one of them tunnels and they did a you know, scan and all that, CT scan. And it may maybe me, I'm daft, daft as a brush. Um, he said, and actually the paramedic at the time, she said to me, she said, You've been so lucky. It's because you were so fit, we reckon, that you're, nothing's broken. And that you, you're, you know, I, I was in a bad way. I mean, my shoulder was, you know, badly bruised and my ribs and all that and I could hardly walk and I was bent over but nothing had been broken and um, and he said to me after he said he said look I would to even rang my wife Jane uh, anyway so I rang and told her and, and uh, anyway um, and he said look don't you're better off not staying in because there weren't any beds in the hospital I'd have been in a, in a, in a corridor he said you, you're better off going home you know, you live opposite us. If anything happens during the night, um, uh, you know, let us know. And, and then I started uh, physio um, for, well, it was about a year having physio. Um, because, uh, as you may know, if you have a major impact, it, the muscles kick in and protect themselves. And yeah. a while to protect yourself. And what happened with me is Anthony and Owen kept in touch. And they said there's this transplant games. Um it's the first ever time Anthony Nolan, uh, as, as, a, as an organisation and Stem Cell, is being regist- uh, recognised. And there's these British transplant games. I didn't know anything about them. Um, and then I read and, and found out that they started what, about 40 years ago. And, um, and it all started to encourage people to um, really get back into sports. And I thought, Fantastic. So I went up to, um, and I was really nervous, really nervous. You know, and I, I thought, oh, these people have had a transplant. What's it going to be like? You know, um, and I thought, well, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd played golf in the uh, in the past and and football. Football didn't happen at the transplant games at the time. And I thought I'd do a bit of running. I wasn't a sprinter. Um, you know, as you know, I'd done a half marathons, marathons. You know, good endurance, but the longest distance was 5 k. So I thought, well, I'll do the 5 k, and I'll do the 1,500 metres. That'll be enough. Going up to Newcastle, I'd got myself fit again. And it was fantastic. Met all these amazing people. You know, little kiddies running, doing, say, 10 yards or something. Had a lung transplant, heart transplant, kidney. All these, you know, hundreds of people, all the parents, uh, a few spectators. It was just magnificent uh, being with people and sharing their story, and listening to their stories. And, and I thought, you know, I was representing Anthony Nolan and, 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 I, and I, it was at Gateshead, Gateshead Stadium, where Steve Cram was, uh, you know, uh, top, top uh, athlete and other top athletes had run. And, you know, and there was me. And I remember going into the um, changing rooms beforehand. And it said there was something like about um, drug tests or something. And I thought, well, I, I wouldn't pass that because I was on this medication still. And, you know, and uh, but I went there and I won. I won the 1500 metres and the 5K. And I felt like an Olympic champion. <laughs> you know, I really did. And uh, that set me off and these transplant games. And I thought, this is fantastic. So then I thought, and you know, and it's every year. And then I thought, well, I'll do this again. And then I started doing the golf. And, you know, take the golf clubs, went up to Liverpool, and I won. Won the golf. I won the 1500 again, and I won the 5K again. And I thought, I love this.
2: Before we come on to any more on the Transport Games, a couple of anonymous listener questions, uh, marathon-themed. If anyone does want to submit any listener questions, if you follow the Transplant Take On Sport social media pages, Facebook and Instagram are at Take On Pod, and Twitter is at TTOSPod. So a couple in now. I just thought before we get too far into the Transplant Games, we'll get these marathon questions done and then we can talk more about the British, European and World Games and your sports. So first one, what does the application process involve for the London Marathon? What's the sort of criteria, if there is any?
0: Well, for the London Marathon, um, it operates on a ballot system right so what happens is it's around the time of the London Marathon normally it's around it's it's in April what normally in April at the moment with Covid it's 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 going to be in October because everything was pushed back and I think they're doing a virtual um, London Marathon uh, this time round so people can people are registered and doing it virtually submitting their times but there will be some elite runners similar to last year. There were some elite runners. I think they went around St. James's Park. Normal events would be after the London Marathon, about the next two or three days, the release um, an opportunity to apply. And you apply and it normally costs um, about 40, 50 pounds. And you can put whether you donate your uh, if you don't get in, whether you donate to charity or not, your money. Right. Right. Um, if, 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 you, if you do get in, and it's a very rare chance that you will get in, if you get in, I mean, I applied, believe it or not, the London Marathon started in 1981. And I applied every year for that. And I never got in. And in all the times I've applied, I've applied about 20 times. And I've ever, ever once got in. Each time I've got, gone through a running club that I've been a member of, because they sometimes have one or two places if you're an existing member of a running club, they normally have a, a, a one or two places and they normally raffle them off or, or decide who's who's the best person to have it. Um, and then uh, there's also charity places. So if anyone seriously wants to do it and they've got a, a charity that's close to their heart, they will always normally get a place. Charities buy places called Gold, Golden Bond Places. And I think they have to pay about £500 for these places. So most charities now... Insist that you need to raise a certain amount of money to make it worth their while, and obviously it's a great opportunity to promote a charity and, and do your bit. Um, and so it's normally about two thousand, or it could be three thousand pounds, uh, that you're expected to raise. And in my case, um, I, I um, the first time I did it for Ashley Nolan, and I got a uh, what's known as a golden bomb place and so and they're fantastic all the charities are fantastic they will support you they will help you through uh you know your training program they might even have um you know times where they'll have in this case with with covid they might have a a virtual events if things ease they might have a uh, the odd event where you all get together those people are training together and it really is a great way to do it the london marathon itself applying for Is something that uh, you've got to think about seriously uh, if you're going to do it. And I would recommend that you don't do what most people do. You know, they might have a beer in the pub or something and think, right, I'll do that London Marathon. And then they'll start training in, say, the December or the January, and it's in April. You really need to have a good plateau, a good uh, underlying level of fitness before entertaining it. And I would recommend that you have at least you're able to do at least a half marathon and ideally 15 miles that you can run comfortably without any major problems, unless you wanna walk it. But have a think about the, the officials and the volunteers because they have to be out there for many hours. And if you're out there for more than five hours, then they're out there through rain, snow and it has snowed in April and it has chucked you down a long time. So if you can get around a bit quicker than that, then that's really going to help people.
2: And the other question is, would you ever consider running an Ironman? Do you know what?
0: Yeah, I, I, I would. And and um, in my younger days, we went to, um, we had a, uh, we've got a friend who was working in Cape Town and we went to the, um, I went and ran in 1998. I ran uh, before my transplant that was. 1998, I ran the Cape Town Half Marathon, and my friend, Archie, um, ran the marathon. And it was fantastic. And on the, whilst I was there, they run a, an event called the Comrades, which is about 55 miles. And they also do the Two Oceans, uh, which is about 35 miles. And I was really into endurance running. And I thought, well, I'm going to do that one day. But as things have moved uh, on, and my, perhaps uh, my thoughts have changed, I love triathlon, and I had a go at triathlon. I did a, an open water triathlon. I'm rubbish at swimming. I mean, I can swim, but I'm not really good at swimming. Um, but and I did breaststroke for the for the swim. It was only about 750 meters in Blenheim, uh, the Blenheim uh, Lake there. And I've so I've done uh, three or four triathlons, but the the Ironman is just a cat a different kettle of fish. I mean, you've got to run a marathon after. You've cycled something like—is it a hundred miles or one hundred k?
2: I think so. We were talking about it with um, Hannah Owen, who was on here before as a live donor doing just triathlons, um,
0: and and then and then of course you know you need to do do the swim. It's like a mile swim, and so um, I, I I I do pride myself on prioritising my health, and and I do actually think that just undertaking that. It's a full-time job. You've got to be training most probably the best part of 30, 25 to 30 hours a week.
2: It must take a lot.
0: And I, I actually think that most people, and this is including myself when I used to, um, prior to my transplant, vastly underestimate the, the magic of sleep and rest. And when you're going through any illness, the one thing that often is affected most is what? Sleep. And so if you're not getting quality sleep, you don't recover quickly and you don't recover as quickly as you as, anyway, the older you get. So if you're doing anything or even contemplating that, I would say, um, think about it. Start start off slowly. If you're going to do an Ironman or thinking of that, then build up the dis- respective distances and make sure that you know what you're undertaking. Because you, you don't want to be in a situation. And I know people have done this. You know, they've done a marathon and this is only, you know, starting off. And then they haven't ran for another 12 months or they haven't, you know, they haven't been able to run ever again. Damaged the knee, you know, and and that's the thing. You don't want to be in a situation because it's the joy, isn't it? It's the joy of doing these things and the buzz you get and the camaraderie. And you want to still do that and, and stay healthy and enjoy them.
2: So we'll come back onto the transplant games now and the sport you've played involved with transplant sport. We've, we've mentioned the running that you've won several medals at the world games, the European games, the British games. We'll move on to the golf. Yeah. Did you play competitively before you transplant?
0: Yeah, I did. I, I was very lucky as a youngster. I, I mean, I didn't really take it very seriously, but I was a member of a, a club when I was 15 up in Cheshire called Presby, which is a fantastic club. Um, and I played with my dad and I, you know, I was very lucky. He's a very keen golfer. Um, and then um, when I, it was prior to my transplant, I moved down to Oxford and I was a member. I was playing off a uh, handicap of nine and I was playing two or three times a week. Uh, previously, I played a lot of, of football, um, but I packed the football in playing for a club because I was getting the knocks and also, I, I, you know, I was away from home. Whereas I felt golf was just a natural progression. You know, you get to about 30 odd. um, And and, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. uh, Took it seriously. Um, But then when I had my transplant, I had a complete break. Um, Joining a golf club is quite a commitment financially. um, And so I didn't really get into it uh, at all for a number of years. And then the transplant games came up. And actually, I thought to myself, do you know what? I think I'll have a game, go, game of golf. And so that gave me the the impetus and to think, right, I need to, because you need to have a proper handicap to play in the golf competition at the British Transparent Games. You, know, you can't just turn up. Um, and so uh, so I joined a club and I had to get my handicap going again. And I was useless. I was absolutely useless. Um, but there was obviously something there because I had the fundamentals. But when you start something again, it doesn't come that easily. I mean, I, I, as a youngster, And perhaps people can relate to this. You just do things and you don't think about it. Once you have to start thinking about it, things don't work properly. It's harder. You know, and I didn't used to have lessons. I mean, maybe maybe occasional lessons. But I started to have lessons and it wasn't really getting much better. But I I think I started off at the Transplant Games. I had a handicap of 21. Um, And I I remember having a chat with my dad. He says, yeah, you're a 21. I mean, what's up with you? You know. But I was struggling to play off it, uh, the course that I joined. Uh, and then I got a bit better and I played in the Transplant Games. And I won in the second division, I think it was. I got I only got 34 points. I mean, if you play to your handicap, you get 36. But I think I got about 34 points or something and won it. I thought, oh, this is good. And then I played in um, Malaga in the World Games. Uh, didn't do particularly well. Uh, but it doesn't matter, does it? Golf's a great uh a great social sport, it really is.
2: It does seem to be that you're out walking around. You, if you're playing with friends, you can talk to them as you go around. Have you managed to get many rounds in over the last year?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, with, this, with all of the restrictions, I've uh, been restrict, restricted. But what's been great, I've, I've joined uh, Levington Golf Club, super um, golf club, super setup. It's only five minutes from my house. Uh, I mean, I walked there yesterday just to walk around the course with a with a friend, and um, and my wife joined as well. And so after the first lockdown, you know, when the weather was really nice, well, you couldn't do a lot, really, could you? Um, and so uh, so we used to play nine holes, uh, you know, most evenings, just pop off because golf was lifted. I mean, it is a strange one because in England uh, you still you know, at the moment you can't play golf, but in Scotland they carried on all the way through. And perhaps we should learn something from the Scots, you know. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, I started uh, playing and and I normally play at least, uh, uh, say, once a week um, and and really enjoy it. I think it's I think therapeutically as well. It's I know they say it's a, you know, it's a good walk, spoil, but and it is a frustrating game. But you can't take life too seriously. I mean, when you had a transplant, every day is a bonus. Uh, That's how I look at it. I mean, like today, it's Friday. And I, and I just think fantastic. I'm feeling good. Do it. Went for a walk around the park. I feel great. And and to not be in pain each and every day is fantastic. Because I know so many people who are in pain, and to not be on medication. And in my case, we haven't talked about it, but I've I've been medication free for over six years now. I went completely against the doctors and consultants' advice. I worked with them, but I've studied and studied nutrition, and. Um, Something inside me was saying to me, and I remember the consultant that I saw, Victor, who was a Spaniard uh, super chap, um, he said to me, he said, you won't get a better, Simon, unless you flood your body with four times, your, uh, four times nutritionally dense food than you think you can get in your body and that it's humanly possible. And I came out of the room thinking, what on earth are you on about? And that's why I've just studied and studied in nutrition. And so I only really eat nutritionally dense foods, not energy dense foods. And, and have studied nutrition uh, ever since I was first diagnosed in, in 1991, and I think nutrition and sleep are just the the blind spots for um, people in life and all many people. And also, we're seeing that in sport now, aren't we? We're seeing the top sports people look at the you know the marginal gains. Yeah, um, they're looking. I read about Manchester United. Alex Ferguson was one of the first to take his um, Players off abroad at winter uh, to make sure their vitamin D levels were sufficient, and David, you know, David Borman with cycling, looking for the marginal gains that little one percent that makes the big difference. You know, they 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 even take um, their mattresses, the cyclists uh, abroad, to improve their sleep, and uh, people like Paula Radcliffe, um, you know, she learned from the Kenyans. Mo Farrow, I've read his book. Um, how he, he he was a failure. Mo Farah was one of the biggest failures uh, in, his, in his early days. They always thought he'd never make it. You know, he, he didn't take it seriously enough. He wanted to be a footballer, if you read his autobiography. But when they realised, and he, he had to live with the Kenyans, and he started realising what they did, uh, he got better. And he, and he realised, they go for a run in the morning, and they don't then do jobs for the rest of the day. They sit around. Have a cup of tea, have a sleep, and then they go again. And if you eat and breathe like a winner, you too have a much better chance of becoming a winner. And uh, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's this winning mentality. If you want to be a winner, be around winners. You know, if you want to be a loser, stay with the losers. You know, you need to get away from the people who are dragging you down, uh, giving you bad vibes. Uh, and that—that's something I've taken, and I encourage my son, and I encourage other people to do. You know, it's a tough call sometimes, especially when you've got friends. But anything negative, it's like a cancer. You can, you can use it in your favour, you know, uh, as an obstacle. But why not see something as an opportunity? I always look for the opportunities. Always look for the possibilities. And it's about the more my, my whole approach is it's not about whether it's a bad or a good experience. It's about learning from every experience. And it's about having as many experiences as possible and you have so much um freedom to to make those choices in other countries we don't have a lot of those freedoms does this make sense Luke? yeah yeah definitely you no know, and it's you know i've been to for instance last year i went to uh, pakistan there were, there were the army and the police on virtually every you know corner in the city you know you go to uh, china other places what we've got in this country and, and in some other countries is, is even though you know some people will moan about things, you know, I, I'm not interested in moaners. my, my, my approach is' it's down to it's down to you, it's down to you individually and it's down to me if it's to be it's up to me and in life you either get excuses or results. you can't get both. It's that simple. don't make excuses, make progress. Uh, And and, uh, I suppose this is where my learnings and I suppose, learning about other people and different philosophies. And it's about it's all about good habits, good daily habits stick and they're easy to live with. Bad habits like smoking, drinking too much, addiction, um, they are all encompassing. And and if you're in that situation, you can't see the wood from the trees. You can't make rational decisions. and, And that's that's not blaming someone. They need help. And the first stage of an alcoholic is always what? You can't help an alcoholic until Alcoholics Anonymous will say this. You know, first stage is steps, 12 steps. The first step is step one is to accept the situation you're in. And step 12 is to help others. And, and you can't get healed unless you go to step 12, helping others. So I suppose I think where I'm coming from, my passion is is if I can help other people, if I can inspire other people, if I can, even if it's a little thing, I've started this Daily Minute. Lewis, you heard about that?
2: Yeah, well, that's on my list to come on to. We may as well do it now, actually.
0: Yeah, well, the the Daily Minute was was something which um, uh, last year I went on a webinar. I mean, we're all in lockdown. We couldn't do anything. We were all paralysed, weren't we? We were all experiencing what people go through in a transplant where you're stuck. You know, or if you're ill, you can't go out, you, you know, you're trapped. And, and if you're fit and healthy, you really most probably fight against that. Or you, you try and channel your energies in, in a positive way and discover new things. And in, in my case, I went on a webinar which was which was led by the NHS um, mental health lead uh, for safeguarding, Kenny Gibson. And, and also Suzanne Gardner, who heads up Sporting and Wellbeing. And they gave presentations and also there was a lady you who know, I, I can't remember from um, sporting and uh, from uh, swimming well-being. And they all gave fantastic presentations. There was about 100 uh, health professionals on this. And, and I was invited to go on this and I was honoured to, to be invited. And I listened to their presentations and they were talking about the uh, anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide uh, and all the, 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 the horrible things that have been going on during lockdown mental health issues and all the clubs and societies and sports clubs have been decimated by the impact of COVID and uh, after that I thought well what can I do what can I do you know I can't do anything I'm restricted um, but what could I do and so I started you know I'm thinking the power of sport the power of exercise so I thought well why do I had a chat with my son Ed who's fantastic he's, he's 20 now and he said uh, you know and I said why don't I do this mini so I'm just doing a minute of exercise, and that's all it is. It started off uh, on a journey. I started on day day one, a bit like the transplant. I was day zero, day one. And I just started it, and it's just three different exercises. It was initially with some tuck jumps and uh, squat jumps and lunges, and I did them for each 20 seconds, and, and then and then I pulled my calf, actually, so I had to change <laughs> the round. So then you really think, well, I'll do something different, so I did some press-ups. The idea is, though, Lewis, it's about – If you can can get your heart rate accelerated, even if it's for 60 seconds, it's been proven scientifically. That's the equivalent of doing like uh, like a 45-minute, say, cycle or or easy jog. So you've got to get your heart rate elevated. And what it does, it boosts those endorphins and it makes you feel good. So it's not just the physical side. It's just the... um, Uh, mental side you feel great so you do it you have to really push yourself perhaps to get going and that's the hardest thing with anything isn't it it's that energy to get started and to think right I'm going to do something different make a change and it's so simple and it reminded me when I was in hospital you know just thinking I've got to get up I've got to get out of bed I've got to have a shower I've got to get changed have I got any clean clothes have I got any boxer shorts You know, I couldn't have a shave off the time. I did have a shave. You know, I want to feel good. You want to look good. You know, and you've got personal pride. I'd have my hair all dropped out and everything. But you know, those little things—press ups against the wall. You know, and so now I've just carried on. And initially, I did it. I was, I, I reaching out to local sports clubs. So I was trying to promote, say, for instance, Warwick Hockey Club, and I'd wear the the hockey uh outfit. i w I'd wear Warwick ho- hockey top. I'd I support Wolves, so I'd wear the Wolves top and do football, you know, and hold a football or rugby. I like Coventry uh Coventry Rugby Club. I've done some work with them, you know, on the performance side and some of their players and the coaches. And so, you know, I promoted rugby. So I was trying to reach out. I'm rubbish on social media. If you can help Lewis with this, I'm absolutely useless. I'll post it on
2: We could share a few on the Transport Take On sport pages.
0: And I'll post it on my Twitter site, which is uh, at Perkins Simon, and I'll put it on um, my Facebook. But, you know, I'm I'm not really good at that. and I need some help there. Uh, But uh, I just do it now. And I just carried on doing it. And people seem to like it. And, I mean, I've had some lovely messages from people. You know, one lady, she lost four stone. And she just started it. And then she started walking. And then she started jogging. And then she started paying attention to her nutrition I've been on the radio, uh, radio Coventry in Warwickshire, BBC Coventry in Warwickshire. There's a lovely lady Trish, who does the afternoon shot show, Trisha Doodoo. She's got me on there. She she needs to get going on it. Trish does. She she keeps stopping and starting, and she keeps saying she's fallen off. But it's all about you know. Do you want it? If you want it, it's there for you. All the all the answers are there. You know, we we can do so much more than we think is possible. You know, and it's finding. What works for people is not for everyone. It's like anything, isn't it? Find what works for you, have fun, enjoy it, and, uh, you know, life's
2: good. I think people will find your videos and the, the way you've spoken today useful. So we'll move on to our final sport of this record, which is tennis. Have you been playing at a decent standard throughout your life?
0: Uh, no, I mean, when I grew up, I mean, tennis was, I mean, it's, I mean, it's elite sport, to be honest. I mean, we didn't, we, I think we had a couple of tennis courts. I went to a... Um, uh, a, a good school it, it used to be a grammar school but it was a comprehensive when I went there we didn't play tennis at school no one I mean I think one 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 girl was a member of a tennis club when I was at school our, our school we had about I don't know about a thousand people there and, and not many people were members of tennis clubs in those days I mean we're going back to the ooh, 70s 80s um but I um, I joined um Warwick Boat Club when I moved to Warwick and, and that's a fantastic facility. It really is first class. It's got tennis, it's got rowing, and it's got uh, squash and bowls. And I started playing tennis. And actually, do you know why I've started tennis, Lewis? The reason I started tennis is I couldn't really do much else. And I started, I went to play tennis, and we played doubles, and it was quite sociable. I was really missing the social connection and, you know, being with other people. So I could turn up on, say, a Tuesday morning I didn't have to exert myself too much. I mean, if you play doubles tennis with people who are in the like sixties and seventies, you know, and, and so it, it was great and it was good fun and it was safe. I wasn't having a chance of infection or anything. And and then um, and then I saw these transplant games, and uh, and actually, perhaps I'm a bit. I'm a bit tight. Let's say, let's say, and and, and there were the transplant games in in Sardinia and Europe, uh, and I thought, well, I'm not paying. EasyJet, or, or Ryanair, about 100 quid to take the golf clubs to Sardinia, I'll do the tennis. So I thought, right, I've got to get myself decent at tennis, half decent. So I had a few lessons with uh, Marcus Willis, who who ended up uh, playing, actually, at Wimbledon and got to the second round a few about four or five years ago I and played, and played Sampras. And he got knocked out, but he's a great guy, and he, he gave me some lessons, and the Gavin, Gavin um, Henderson, who's the coach there at Warwick Boat Club, and it was great, and and so I play, but I'm I'm not particularly any good, you know. I'm I'm average really. I'm not a club player or anything. I'm not good enough, but I don't mind. I, I mean, who cares? Who cares what you like?
2: As long as you enjoy it.
0: I I love it. It's so it's a sociable game, and again, it's a game which you can play any age. You know, there's there's people there who are in their. I mean, there's been people in the 90s playing tennis, and the same with golf. And 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 I'm at, I suppose at stage I'm I'm 56. I mean I'm, I I just think every day is a bonus. I was my parents were told he'd never get to 40 or 50 anyway, you know. And like, look at me, I'm so lucky. You know, I, 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 every day really is uh, magic. Today the sun's out. Uh, I'm going to go for a walk. Uh, um, you know, I can potter about. I've been making some phone calls for for a, a support group, COVID Warwick and Leamington support group i uh, are ringing people actually, who are in a really terrible situation, and they just need. A lot of people are so lonely; they've got no family, they've got no one to talk to. You know, it's terrible. So you know, and I just, I just think that uh, if, if there's so many kind people out there, there's so many really superb people. I mean, you know, Louis, the Transbank community. You know, you have got people like um, Lynn Holt who's devoted her life to people who've uh, have had transplants as a heart transplant coordinator. And now she's masterminding and leading the transplant games. Uh, Simon Elmore with the transplant uh, family. He's, he's there, you know, bringing the kiddies and the parents together. It's fantastic. There's so many kind people. I could go on and on uh, inspirational people uh, in every all walks of life. I was watching the chap, chap on, b b c this morning mark his name is um soldier uh blown up he's got no legs he's got no uh he's only got one arm what's he doing today? He's running five k I mean it just hats off to all people isn't it
2: absolutely the transport community is great if anyone wants to hear from simon Elmore, his episode with me is i think it's the third one we did so you can look back in the the list of podcasts for that and listeners you'll be hearing from Lynn very shortly. Uh, So Simon, it's been, it's been great to talk to you today. I've learned a lot about bone marrow transplants and all your, all the things you've been through is inspiring. I think people will take a lot from it. So a couple more questions before we go. I appreciate it's been a long one today. Could you summarize your proudest moments in sport Uh, post-transplant?
0: Post-transplant undoubtedly um, my, I think my proudest moment, uh, I'm getting emotional saying it, my, my proudest moment was was uh, uh, finishing uh, the London Marathon um, because and why? Uh, my wife was there, uh, Jane, love her to bits, um, uh, and I was running for Anthony Nolan, and they're the people who saved my life. The organisation was fantastic. Um, there's so many proud moments, but just to to, to, to do that. And the marathon is such a test. I know the Ironman we talked about is a test. Um, but there was that. But also, um, in the transplant community, uh, winning, winning that first, I think like your first medal, um, winning that that, that 1,500 metres, I just sprinted. Uh, I, was, I was running around the track at Gateshead um, it was a bit wet, I can remember it uh, vividly. There was quite a big crowd in the st- st- stadium there. And I just thought, it's now or never. And I just went. And I went so fast. You know, I felt like a man possessed. And I won. And I can't even remember the crowd or anything. But I won. And I pulled my car off. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise I pulled it you know, and, I was, and then and then afterwards, I could hardly walk. And, and we were going on holiday, uh, walking holiday, in Cornwall. And I was a right wreck. I was a complete letdown. But I wasn't bothered, you know, that sense of, of winning. Um, and again in Malaga, I mean, Malaga r- running for Great Britain, you know, and I, I won the 5K uh, in Malaga. And there were a number of us, and we were we were the team, Team GB won. And, I, and John Moore, uh, who you must interview, he's a powerhouse. He won the 5K. And there are all these people from all over the world uh, there together, all friends together, but so competitive when it comes to it, because we all want to do our bit and we want to win. Everyone wants to be surrounded by winners and be a winner. And Danny as well, young lad, first transplant games, I think it was, the World Games, Scottish lad. And we won as a team. And a team, I think that for me, it's this team aspect, isn't it? Yeah. It's, everyone wants to be part of a team and something bigger than themselves. And that's what I love.
2: That is the key to it. The team, you get the camaraderie, you get that fam- sort of family of people who know what you've been through and they can all sympathise with you, empathise. Um, final question before we go. And it's one I asked to everyone who's been on before. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone facing a transplant?
0: I think the most important thing is, is, is to really think to yourself, this is a fantastic opportunity. It's a fantastic, really is the gift of life. It, it, it's, it's magical and yes, you'll be uh, worried, worried sick. Yes, it might go wrong. Yes, it's a, quite unreasonable to have tears, emotions. But the possibilities are unbelievable. What it can give you. And it, you will have setbacks. Everybody have setbacks. I had setbacks. I was readmitted to hospital. um, Uh, But when you've got no option and you have got I had no option the second time round, no option at all. It's the only option. Embrace it and look after yourself and educate yourself. Talk to other people who have gone through a similar thing. Don't be afraid to ask any question, any any. what, even if you think it's a silly question, it's been asked before there's loads of other people around you who have been through that and they will help you and if they don't, if you ask someone and they don't give you, then don't stop ask somebody else surround yourself with positivity and above all else invest in your health learn how to stay healthy learn about sleep the power of sleep, nutrition rest and recovery and don't Ever worry about what anyone else says about you, how you look, how you appear. Don't spend ages on your phone. Social media can work wonders, but equally it can be terrible and debilitating. What's most important is, as you said, Lewis, I think, and other guests, I'm sure, is your health, because with your health, you have all the things and the possibilities without it you don't and then it becomes you start depending on others and life gets tougher so that would be my message i know it's a long one but i think it's such an important one because having a transplant is let's face it is amazing and not everybody gets the opportunity and that's why i urge if you're having one to talk to others and talk to friends and particularly in the in the sense of registering for stem cell and bone marrow, encourage other people to not only register for that, but also for blood donation as well, because there's a massive shortage of blood donors to donators throughout the UK and throughout uh, the world. And I've had about 300 bags of blood, and I wouldn't be here today without all the support of all the medical staff and family and all those uh, donors, whether it's blood, stem cell or organ donors, Donors are fantastic.
2: I think you've summed it up brilliantly there with some fantastic advice. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for coming on and having a chat today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I've learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners will too. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you go and subscribe or follow wherever you normally listen. That could be Apple, Google, Spotify, Acast, Amazon, wherever it normally is. Uh, here we go. A little task for you. If there's anybody in your house, friend, relative, whoever that may be, They're not familiar with podcasts. They don't have a podcast app. They're not sure what a podcast is. And you can spread this even further and wider once we're back to some sort of normality and these lockdowns end. But if there's someone who's not so sure about podcasts, when they're not looking, just get their phone, download a podcast app. It could be, as I've said before, Apple, Spotify, Google, Acast, Amazon. Download that app, search for Transplant Take On Sport, and just press subscribe or follow. It's completely free, so nobody's losing out there. And hopefully that might help with downloads. of beer Gear, here, and we can boost that up and help more people see it. It would also mean a massive amount to me. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, that is the most listened or most used app, I should say. Uh, if you could leave a five-star review on there, or rate it five stars, that would mean a huge amount to me. Uh, I said I'd read out any five-star reviews on the podcast, and we've had a couple more in. So Matty C 86 says, excellent and well worth listening to. Every episode shows how having a transplant affects the patient and their loved ones in a different way. Amazing podcast and well worth listening to. And The Kev says, great little podcast, five stars. I've listened to a couple of the pods. It's good to hear stories and proves that we can all achieve our goals, no matter our abilities or conditions. So if you don't believe me, you can believe those two people who left reviews along with the others and all the people who rated it five stars so far. Simon, thank you once again for coming on. You've been a great guest. I've been Lewis Daniels, and you've been listening to Transplants Take on Sport.